I'm Spencer. And I'm Andrew, and you're listening to the At A Distance podcast from The Slowdown. Today we'll be speaking with Daniel Schmachtenberger, a founding member of The Consilience Project, a nonprofit media organization aimed at improving public sense-making and dialogue. Daniel's work focuses on areas including catastrophic and existential risk, civilization and institutional decay, collapse and progress, and collective action problem-solving. Daniel has this unique ability to not just think deeply about the state of our existence, but the rigor, openness, and curiosity to analyze and think about every perspective and angle on practically any subject. So thrilled to have him on today. Let's get him on the line. Welcome to At A Distance. Thanks for joining us today. Happy to be here talking with you, Andrew. Thank you for having me. So let's just get right into it. What's kind of at the top of your mind right now? What are you finding yourself struggling with most these days? Uh, Interesting place to start. (laughs) I figured I'd start on an easy one for you. I think the answer to both of those questions is the same. What's on the top of my mind and what's uh, challenging has to do with how to help the world understand the nature of the meta-crisis well enough that a decentralized innovation zeitgeist towards solving the things that actually need solved can happen in time. Mm -hmm. I can go into what that means and how I think of what the meta-crisis is, what the innovation zeitgeist that's needed, why we talk about decentralized, meaning that it requires a full collective intelligence of the world working on it as opposed to simply centralized projects. Uh, that would be the fastest way I would describe it to start. How can we all begin to find solutions for our problems if if we can't even agree on what they really are? We have no sort of shared sense of reality at the moment. You could pick almost anything, vaccines, any subject right now. Is that kind of what you mean about a, a decentralized? Uh, that's a subset of the issue. So one of the issues is when we talk about solve a problem, Mm -hmm. we're talking about usually larger scale problems that affect lots of people and solve means implement some kind of solution, whether it's a piece of legislation or a piece of new technology or some kind of project that is going to be able to address it that's going to require lots of people and probably lots of institutions coordinating, which means either agreeing or being forced. Mm -hmm. So an open society is this idea that we can have order at a very large scale as opposed to chaos that is emergent rather than imposed. Mm -hmm. A kingdom or an oligarchy or a feudalism or a monarchy of any kind is the idea that you want order because the chaos model sucks. And the chaos model ends up turning into some kind of oppression anyways because eventually some warlord arises Mm -hmm. or a few warlords arise. And so there's this toggle between chaos and oppression, right? Then the oppression gets so bad that people overthrow it, you get chaos and then somebody wants order. And so this chaos oppression toggle is a pretty bad toggle. And so the only answer is how do we get order that isn't oppressive because it's not imposed by force, but everybody wants it. Right. For everybody to want it means you have to actually have an inculturation where everybody wants to and is capable of understanding reality simile and understanding each other and wanting to coordinate rather than war. So democracy was that wacky idea. It's totally eroded. And the question is in a post-digital age when the fourth estate from a central, we can all read the same newspapers gone forever. And when education, it's like, what is the future of education when 
AI and robotic automation is about to completely remove most of what education was designed for. Mm-hmm. In the presence of the new suite of emerging technologies that debases the axiom set of everything that were our previous social systems, how do we get emergent order so that chaos and oppression aren't the only two answers? Because exponential tech-empowered chaos will be catastrophic destruction. Oh, CRISPR weapons for everybody because now CRISPR bio gene drives are like really, really cheap or Mm -hmm. uh, weaponized drones for everybody (laughs) or the ability to make fucked up generative text AGIs for everybody. We're going there, right? China's not because they're like, we'll control that with ubiquitous surveillance. Okay, great. So exponential tech-empowered autocracy and oppression. Those are our tractors, right? You either get exponential tech-empowered oppression or exponential tech-empowered chaos. So either catastrophic risk or dystopias. They both suck. And yet anything that's not employing exponential tech will just lose because it's so much less powerful. Mm -hmm. So how do we employ the whole full suite of exponential technologies to make the new generation of open societies that bring about emergent order so we don't have chaos, but are also not dystopic because they enshrine the sovereignty and dignity of the individual aligned with collective well-being? Mm. Over the past few months, you've been building the Consilience Project, uh, which is a massively exciting tool for collective intelligence. So I just wanted you to kind of take us through a bit of that, but if you could just begin with the name and how you came to that and and why it is truly the perfect name for what the effort is. It was actually a really brilliant team helping us with the visual design that came up with it. And I thought it was perfect. They were fans of E.O. Wilson and who popularized the term consilience. Consilience is this idea in philosophy and science that rather than there being one perspective on a thing that gives you the full knowledge of it, there each perspective gathers different elements of the information of the thing. And so a couple of perspectives might actually seem really different. If I'm looking at the building from the north side and from the east side, it looks different or from the inside and outside or whatever it is. But if I think the building is a 2D snapshot, they'll actually seem incommensurable, right? They'll seem each exclusive. If I understand that it's a higher dimensional thing and I need lots of those lower dimensional perspectives to make sense of it, I can start to seam all those perspectives together into something like a video. Now I can actually make sense of it, right? Because each of the perspectives was a, i.e. a 2D picture is a lower dimensional thing than what it actually is. And so often we have a perspective of a thing, think that that perspective is truth, are willing to go to war for it. And it's actually a whole dimension reduced of the nature of the complexity of the thing. So we think, well, the problem is climate change and it's too much CO2. We need to do everything we can to get the total amount of CO2 down because otherwise it's going to destroy everything because of IPCC models and whatever it is. So we're going to carbon tax to you know make an anti-incentive in the market and whatever it is. And then we're like, why are these fucking crazy people fighting climate change and the Paris Accords and the carbon tax? Like, why, why would people in our country fight that? Well, because they're seeing a different facet of the problem that's real. They're not stupid. They're like, does every country reify that carbon tax? No. Do you get China to, to reify it when you can't do enforcement on them because they also have nukes? Um, no. Are we already looking at probably a change in power geopolitically from things that at least still tell the story that they're open societies, whether they are or not, to something that very clearly doesn't tell that story? And so if you now damage GDP growth with a carbon tax, given the way that every aspect of the entire economy is dependent upon energy in the Western and developing world relative to 
other countries that are already moving up in geopolitical power, are you not just actually speeding up the rate of exponential power autocracy taking the world over? Or if you slow down GDP growth, doesn't the social science say that that is likely to increase war? Because only when you have very positive sum GDP can everybody get more without taking each other's stuff because it doesn't go zero sum. So I can look at if my metric is CO2, the solution that looks good might cause more war or exponential power than autocracy. <laughs> In the same way, if my solution is like some immediate thing regarding social justice, it might seem like a good idea to do something that breaks the country apart more radically that actually has a culture that maybe has worse racial policies run the world over the next 30 year time period. It's like, well, that might have been, I was only seeing a part of the problem. I wasn't seeing the whole, mm -hmm. the whole problem very well. So the idea of consilience is that we can take many different perspectives on the same situation that all provide some actual signal, some insight, and we can synthesize those together to get a higher order understanding. And maybe sometimes it's I don't have enough information for strong confirmation from one source, but from lots of sources, I start to get a bigger confidence margin and or not just a better confidence margin, but a more full picture. If we're wanting to make governance decisions in topics that affect lots and lots of things, right? The, the choice on carbon is also going to affect stuff about war and geopolitics and whatever. I can't be looking at one part of it and trying to affect that without externalizing harm to other things. So if I want to make a governance decision that's a good decision, I have to look at all the things connected. So in order to do that, I need to take lots of perspectives. So that's why we use the word consilience is how do we orient the world towards being able to not do narrative warfare that takes the other perspective as uh, having no signal, being pure noise and probably just um, dumb and evil mm -hmm. and their own perspective as being more right and complete and certain than it is and actually say, how, how do we seek perspectives? I have a friend who uh, his PhD thesis was looking at higher stages of psychological development correlated to different metrics and which ones correlated highest. And the one he found correlated highest was perspective seeking. Those mm. who oriented to try to seek the perspective of others and inhabit them and embody them enough that they could make the other person's argument and that they could feel it. And if you really get it well, you never say, if I was in their shoes, I would do something other than them. You say, if I was in their shoes, I would do what they're doing, right? Mm. Then the ability to take lots of those perspectives and synthesize them is what someone who can start to get somewhere. So mm. the idea of consilience is, can we start to develop in people less sanctimonious, righteous certainty, but also less nihilism, right? And because the seeking requires some care, like it's... I can't be nihilistic and work hard to seek perspectives. There's some place where I like believe I can actually make sense of reality and it matters and my choice matters. It's sort of epistemic humility. Yeah, you use that term because you know, one of the things we acknowledge is people will move between epistemic hubris and epistemic nihilism in one step. Like I'm certain I know what it is. And then as soon as it gets too complex, I, I give up. It's like, wait, wait, where's the part where you just sit in uncertainty and still care and try for a while? And so how do we move everybody into that epistemic humility with commitment, mm. be perspective seeking and seek an increasingly complex and nuanced view of reality that becomes a basis for better choices. Well, and at the core of the Consilience Project is this idea of conversation and dialogue. How do you view conversation in terms of creating this understanding of the world? Where does conversation fit into the synthesis that's happening? We can talk about that at a lot of levels. We can talk about it in the way that would have been true during the Enlightenment, right? Um, and say, well, in a conversation, let's say there's two of us, I want to seek to really understand your perspective. What values are you trying to optimize for? 
because we might disagree not because we disagree on the third person sense making but because we disagree on the second person cultural value of what's really important right and you're trying to optimize for the economy and i'm trying to optimize for the environment but what the economy means for you is actually like the well-being of people not being in poverty and what the environment means for me is like the integrity of nature and god's creation or whatever it is Typically, we'll find we actually all value the same things. We're just one of us is taking something for granted and orienting differently. So we need to both align our values because we're going to make choices in service of those and our sense making. What do we think is actually happening? So a good conversation would seek to do that. I'd try to get like, okay, what do you think is going on here? Like third person, just what, what are the facts of the thing? Why do you think those things? So what have you been looking at? Okay. And then what do you value? What do you, which is, what are you scared of? What are you pissed off at? What really matters to you? What are you willing to sacrifice for? And then can I communicate it back to you where you're like, yeah, totally, you got it. And where I also feel it, right? I'm not just like pacifying you for a strategic purpose. One of the interesting things about narcissism and sociopathy is that sometimes the people have higher than average cognitive empathy with lower than average embodied empathy, which is why they can manipulate well. I can model your theory of mind. I just don't give a shit. And that's bad, right? This is, not, this is not a thing we want. What we're not just looking at is can I model your theory of mind for strategic purposes, but can I actually feel what it feels like to be you and give a shit and be like, wow, yeah, like I get mm. that. I, I, I wouldn't, the, the bill, the way I'm wanting to go through would actually fuck that person's life up. And I can imagine being in their position. That sucks. I want to make the bill better. I want to see how to do it better. So in a good conversation, I would be really seeking to understand your come from, both the values and the sense-making. You would be seeking to understand mine. We'd be seeking to synthesize them. We'd also be seeking, are there other perspectives that we're both missing, right? All of that could have been talked about in the 19th century by thoughtful people. And that led to a system of government that said, let's make town halls the core of this thing. Right When there's a very small number of people, we're going to get together and the number of people in the town can all fit into the town hall and we can have a good conversation. And this is before amplification, right? So we're just, it's not more people than can actually talk and hear each other. And because we live in the same area, we kind of know who each other are. We can kind of hold each other accountable. It's pretty clear who, if the representative's house is getting a lot nicer. Um, And so there's this continuous conversation of the fact we live in the same town, right? Um, this was the evolutionary purpose in tribes of gossip was the transparency meant you couldn't violate the law, the forced transparency of everybody talking, right? As the system gets bigger, it becomes way easier to hide the effects and the accounting errors and then corruption emerges and that whole thing. As soon as the town hall started to get too big for everybody to be there and too big for everybody to speak, then we needed to focus on representatives. Then who wanted to be representatives started to optimize for people who were more kind of power seeking and, you know, narcissism and et cetera oriented. And then everyone else, their sense making mostly just turned into who do I back? And then those people became mostly oriented to rhetoric rather than good sense making of how do we stir up group think amongst populations. And that was kind of the dissent. And this is why there was some quote in founding fathers. It was like, uh, voting is the death of democracy. And when I say democracy, I just mean the impulse for participatory governance, whether it's a constitutional democracy or constitutional republic or representative or direct or whatever, just how do we have everyone's input be a part of the governance that they will then be subjected to and responsible for? So we'll call all of those different systems ways of trying to do something like collective intelligence and participatory governance. But voting means we didn't actually come to understand and agree. And so we're going to sublimate physical violence through 
this vote. And if I don't get the thing that I want, I'm still going to not be physically violent because I believe in the system enough that next time maybe I will. Mm. But what's going to happen now is the vote to make it simple for a lot of people to vote on is yes or no on a proposition. And the proposition will benefit something and harm something else. And now based on who's most connected to what's harmed and benefited, I just bifurcated the population, which is why there's very few propositions that get 95% of the vote, right? Most of the time they get 51% of the vote. And now the proposition that you're fighting hard to get to go through I see as actively harming the things that I care about in my life and what's sacred to me. So fuck you, right? And I'm going to petition against you. I'm going to lobby. And so can you have a system based on voting that is a yes or no, a binary vote where the people's views on it get upregulated by lobbying and campaign and whatever efforts, which is drive groupthink, where the underlying proposition, there was never a place that tried to seek what does everybody value in the first place? to make a good proposition. There was a, some special interest group that made the thing. Can you have a system based on voting like that that doesn't polarize the population eventually? No, it's intrinsically polarizing. It's just a stupid way to do it. That's not yeah. democracy. That is one particular bad structure that applied at that technological time. So how do you have a conversation when we're not talking about two people, but when we're talking about 330 million Americans, when we're talking about 8 billion people, how do you have a conversation right. at this scale this is a different question, mm -hmm. right? If we're going to try to say, wow, as big a deal as climate change is, that's not even the problem. It's climate change intersected with global economy, intersected with geopolitics, intersected with the complete overhaul of the energy infrastructure of the world. Okay, so that's the problem. Now, how do we have the conversation around how to solve that, where if anyone defects on it, it can make it to where nobody can agree to it, just like with an arms race. Anybody starts building the AI weapon, everybody has to race to build the AI weapon. How, how do we do that? This is actually the thing we're talking about centrally now, is how do we have the conversations, and by conversation now, I don't mean people talking. How do we have the information sharing and the information synthesis amongst all the agents that need to, to lead to emergent choice making at the scale and speed that need to happen. Mm -hmm. And this is now the new systems of governance we're proposing. Now the same AI that can make propaganda that is perfectly fit to your psychological susceptibilities for everyone at speed, right? And just fuck the info comments forever, which is coming with generative text and whatever. Could that same one also take both voice and written input from everybody and be able to semantically parse it to say, what is the distribution of values and the values that all of society holds? And what is the sense making that everybody holds? And what would a proposition that is the synergistic satisfier, the optimum synergistic satisfier for everyone be and propose that and then have a digital identity crypto based platform where we can now still say what would make that proposition better. And so before going into a vote, we actually are able to utilize that technology to facilitate a conversation beyond human scale in the same way that a microphone allowed us to speak to a larger audience, right? Or a broadcast mm. did. But now we're not just talking about broadcast, we're actually talking about parsing and synthesizing the information. Now it's not that the AI makes the choice, it's actually taking human input, helping us process the data scale of it, then giving us back an input that we get to work on through a collective intelligence system. Now we start to think about what does a 21st century open society look like? Because mm. we know what that tech applied to a closed society looks like. We'll control the internet, we'll control the information feeds, we'll make sure that everything is state-aligned propaganda. We will use ubiquitous technological surveillance to control everybody not being able to do stuff that messes the system up. That same tech, though, can facilitate. So let's say that 
Facebook's algorithm wasn't optimized for time on site, which ends up being tribalism and bias reinforcing. But it was, and you could be aware of this and opt in. Maybe you had opportunities to opt into different kind of network settings. But those who opted into the ones that increased collective intelligence would just empirically start to do better because the collective intelligence would be more effective, um, let alone feel better. What if the that AI was optimizing for how well you were seeking and taking many different perspectives? And so it was showing, exposing you to ex perspectives that you didn't have and seeing how well you could interact with and understand them and looking at the output that you had, not in terms of economic offer to the advertisers, but in terms of the increase in the complexity of your thinking and understanding. Could we utilize the same technologies to do shit like that? Totally. That's mm. scary also because we're like, fuck, I don't know who's controlling it, who's deciding what the evolved yeah. human is, right? But the thing is, it's already happening towards the worst metrics you can imagine. And you can't turn the stuff off. So then we're like, okay, well, who's the? what is the legitimate authority that guides that? Well, it's a fucked up question, but it's one we have to answer because it's already happening in the worst ways. Hey everyone, taking a quick break to tell you about our new At A Distance book. It's our first book and we're publishing it with our friends at Apartamento. It features a curated selection of interviews from this program over the past year and a half, condensed, edited, and distilled. The book is a collection of the best thinking shared by our guests presented in digestible, short-form narratives. It provides a hopeful, optimistic guide for today and tomorrow in a gorgeous, flexi-bound volume. You can order your copy at slowdown.tv backslash book or through Apartamento and select booksellers. So we're talking existential risk and from a sort of collective action standpoint, at least when it comes to the climate, how are you thinking about this? I mean, there seems to be this sense that we can move slowly to address the climate, but there's a speed at which we need to tackle this crisis. How are you thinking about actually making choices under this scarcity of time? Okay, it's tricky. The exercise called if I was king of the world, what would I do? <laughs> is mostly a useless and pretty unhelpful exercise because it keeps people from understanding the fundamental nature of the necessity for better coordination where there is no king of the world. Okay, so with regard to climate, I don't think about climate change as a separate issue. I already mentioned that I think of it in terms of economics and et cetera, but I also think of it in terms of... Just on the call right before this with a friend, Nate Hagens, who runs an Institute for Energy in the Future, has very good assessments that add to the climate change story of the kind of rapid rate of decrease in the quality and availability of hydrocarbon-based fuel with the increase in the total economic need. And when you have things like Jevons paradox and the Garrett relation, where when you get more efficient, you just use more energy rather than the other way around. And the fact that you have a correlation between GDP and total energy being used and that the energy return on energy investment of the new energy technologies is not that good that even if we tried to make it to renewables there's a massive fucking gap and yeah. that you have a kind of oh wow we subsidized growth radical growth with a finite resource that's hitting diminishing returns with an exponential need for growth where when you start to slow the growth down the whole system breaks if you try to think about climate change from a CO2 perspective and you don't look at these issues, you actually miss the fact that some of the most catastrophic things are faster. 
and they kind of go together. Do I think of climate change as an existential risk by itself in terms of making an inhabitable biosphere in the near term? No, not really. Uh, inhabitable coastal cities? Sure. Uninhabitable some areas? Sure. Now, if it doesn't make an uninhabitable biosphere, but some areas, and those some areas happen to be very population dense, then we get a massive human migration issue impending. Now, does massive human migration start to equal radical resource pressures? Yes. Does that equal resource wars? Probably. Does some of that happen to be along geopolitical fault lines that are already very tense where it can equal escalation to large-scale war? Totally. Do I think that India is in a good position regarding its food security or Pakistan or Bangladesh, particularly regarding summers that might hit 52 Celsius in their heat waves that take out the crops with low groundwater that pertains to you know over 100 million, maybe a couple hundred million people? Bad scenarios. And this is well before we're talking about climate change as a the whole biosphere is ruined into a Venusification or an ice age or something like that, or even Manhattan's underwater. Mm -hmm. So the soonest things I'm worried about with climate change are human migration related. Mm -hmm. And the effects that are associated with climate change, the energy economy, the way that relates to the economy and the way it relates to geopolitics and how it is a forcing function for other catastrophic risks. Right. So then we say, okay, well, timeline, we're not going to prevent all those things. Just not. Right. Like we already haven't. Uh, some people argue that the war in Syria a few years ago was climate change related because the drought that had the, the subsistence farmers not able to farm that moved to the city that led to the fact that there was heavy geopolitical tension along a, a border, that that was a climate change mediated drought. It was a little one. And it honestly got pretty close to superpower kinetic warfare. So we're not going to solve all those. So do we need to focus on resilient strategies, like really, really, really fast resilient strategies? Totally. But if we start to go through the escalation pathways, I can walk you through hundreds of them that are near term, involving AI, involving CRISPR, involving a diff bunch of different climate change scenarios involving. So then we say, okay, well, where do we start cutting corners and trying to solve the near-term problem, causing worse problems in local areas. It really buys us no time because we're too myopic. Fuck, this is the wrong approach. Why are we not solving any of these? Why is it that with the United Nations, not only have we not achieved the sustainable development goals, but we have not been able to keep one new technology that has emerged from creating an arms race? Has there been an arms race related to drone weapons? Yes. Has there been an arms race related to cyber weapons? Yes. Has there been an arms race related to AI warfare, to bio and CRISPR applied? Fucking all of them. Okay. So global mm. coordination on arms races, or we know we're failing at that. Now, each one of those, a catastrophic risk. What about tragedy of the commons issues at a global level? Have we dealt with overfishing or biodiversity loss or nitrogen runoff or air water pollution writ large or fucking none of those things. Okay. So tragedy of the commons and arms race are both where each agent, whether it's a country, a company, or a person is pursuing a near term game theoretic advantage that if they don't do, they lose to someone else who does. Well, everyone racing to do that makes the long-term whole maximally bad. That's a really hard coordination challenge. The answer has typically been, you need some single monopoly of power which is what the nation state gives to force everyone to not do it. How do you do it at a global scale when already a bunch of people have nukes? And if you do that, how do you have checks and balances on that power that doesn't become infinitely corrupt? This is now the thing we have to focus on is we have a full global issue. All these issues are global. They need something like coordination at scale, like law, 
and enforcement, but they also needed to not have a monopoly of power that is completely unchecked. Mm. If you don't solve the global coordination problem that makes climate change unsolvable and makes fixing the underlying economic system and makes nuclear and AI and et cetera arms races unsolvable. How about containing a pandemic? You know, I mean, it was just unbelievable going through the past year and a half, two years, seeing this incredible opportunity. It was made so visible how much global coordination was required, kind of whole earth thinking, and yet it didn't happen. And, and we just really wonder why, you know, all of us. Do you have any idea of why, why this seems to be so impossible? And not only to have global coordination, but to be able to think long-term, have long-term plans, and still be able to adjust along the way as time moves on and things change. Yeah, so you just acknowledge two things that relate, which is both a orientation to the near-term rather than the long-term and an orientation to the narrow agentically over the wide comments. So let's give some examples. We know why we created term limits. We didn't like the idea of a king for life and the despotic rule and whatever. Term limits based on a bipartisan system and a popularity vote and that whole thing, is that commensurable with long-term planning? No, it's just not. You just can't fucking do long-term planning in that system. Because once I get elected, two years into it, all I can focus on is getting elected again. For the first two years, I have to be gaining money and political power and whatever for those next two years to happen. And I have to try to make a few wins that will show up within that time scale so that I can get elected again. So am I going to invest in the 30-year projects that take money now, that took more tax money and didn't address people's immediate pain points and whatever, that won't even show and my opponent will be able to say we're wastes and based on wrong ideas? No, I'm not going to do a 30-year plan or a 100-year plan. So is a bipartisan system running on propaganda, um, meaning population-centric control so people feel like they have a vote when they're, everyone is too uneducated to actually really understand what the fuck is going on. Can you even have something like a democracy where we can claim what the issues are, but nobody has the ability to understand the nature of the issues well enough, so they just whatever their bias is just gets hijacked, right? I know, I know people on both sides of the lab leak hypothesis or ivermectin who, or vaccines who are so fucking certain when People who are real double PhD experts disagree vehemently. Like, how the fuck did you mm. get so certain you don't understand this issue at all? Right. Oh, tribalism had you double down really, really hard because the other guys are like anti-science baby killers or whatever, you know, like some grandma killer, some really terrible thing. And so people's epistemics just got hijacked by emotionality and tribalism and fear and whatever else. So then we start to look at it. Is getting the better person in within a term limit situation like that going to do long-term planning? Nope. Mm -mm. Is a situation where my political career is going to be more supported by my party than my country. So my incentive as a representative is to back party over country and the party's orientation for its power for everyone involved is going to be party over country. Is that aligned with a functional system. Nope. And just read the founding father documents. They said this shit would happen, right? Like, like these are the things, how the thing is going to die. Like they've all played out those types of things because, because we've watched it in history before. Okay. So you think about it in this system, 98% of the energy is going to go and just fighting the other guy to get elected 
or to get your lobbying thing or campaign thing through or whatever it is. So almost all the energy is wasted is heat in infighting. And then nobody ever gets to think about long-term anything. Mm-hmm. And nobody shares information with each other. It's maximum info security and you know propaganda and lying and whatever. So there's no ability to have a knowledge base with which to do real coordination. That system is just going to lose to a system that does top-down coordination well, even if it's oppressive. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. worked when it actually had something like patriotism and social solidarity and where the left and the right were still going to lunch with each other and there wasn't that degree of bipartisan uh, misalignment. And so does China that doesn't have an internal dissent system similar and can do a hundred year plan and implement it and can have the people more on board through, even if it is propagandist, right? But more centrally propagandist rather than multiple competing propagandists, can it just do a better job with COVID than we do. Yeah, just totally can. Mm. So now you look at the world's response. Everyone who's making a choice is still a person who doesn't want liability on them. So their own CYA is pretty maximal. And making choices that will have both maximum defensibility and plausible deniability end up orienting towards the wrong kinds of choices. So what you can see is the choice-making architecture is just broken. Mm-hmm. Like you can't fix this particular thing. It's a broken choice-making architecture. And and it's a fucking choice-making architecture that was made when there was a small number of people in town horses and a, a pastoral audience and you rode a horse from a town hall. Like what the fuck? Why have you, – you can't get everyone in a town hall, but you can get everyone in the internet and you can use – cryptographic identity to actually make a secure thing. We do it with banking and you can actually use AI to be able to parse the semantic views of lots of people. And like, there's like, we could innovate and do a better job of the thing. Why are we doing that particular thing? If the people can't check the state, the state can't check the market. The idea was this tripartite system where the market would do some good innovative stuff, but also some perverse fucked up stuff. So it might have the incentive to cut down all the trees. So we say, no, we're gonna make a thing called national forests, which is actually the values the religious, cultural values of the people as the basis of jurisprudence enshrined in law by a state that is given monopoly of violence to be able to back up rule of law and keep the market to say the logging companies can't cut down Yosemite or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. Or no, you can't do that thing. That's organized crime. We're going to try to limit it because otherwise there's going to be a market on organs and a market on everything because people want fucked up stuff. Um, So the idea is the state is given the monopoly of violence to be able to have rule of law as an enshrinement of the values of the people collectively to bind the predatory aspects of market while allowing the good aspects. But that only works if the watchdog problem is solved, which is that the people are binding the state. And this is why government of foreign by the people that all must be educated and engaged citizenry, but it was designed for a little scale. It gets beyond that scale. You also get far enough from the American Revolution that nobody really is afraid of their government in the same way and checking it and invested in stopping keeping up with the Joneses and whatever else so that they go serve a role in government. And now what happens is the market captures the state and you get crony capitalism. And that's the thing that we have. And it's continued to erode those structures. And and with exponential technology emerging in the market sector, it's just way fucking more powerful, faster. The legislation can't begin to keep up with what Facebook or Google are because they're industrial era things trying to deal with digital era things. 
Are you optimistic at all, though? I mean, do you think that there's a big opportunity right now with COVID? From what we know at this moment, is there a way to positively, you know, push or catalyze forces forward for good? Some rational optimism from Daniel today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I kind of want to speak to it mythopoetically first. Um, I'm optimistic in the way there was some optimism in the Council of Elrond talking about how the Fellowship could do something against Sauron and the Orcs. Um, like radically outnumbered, the time seems eminent and terrible. And there's something like faith in, in the possibility being able to exist in the unknown unknown set, right? That that orients them to work to find it, right? It's not an irrational faith, but it's a transrational faith, which is, I don't yet see the solution in full detail, but that doesn't mean I think there's no solution. What orients me to try to find it is something like a faith and a possibility set that orients the work in that direction. And then a solidarity between people that is for a transcendent purpose worth more than life and death that has within it the right criteria for collective intelligence and capacity that the other thing doesn't have. The same thing that's the optimism of the Rebel Alliance going against a Death Star that has no fucking chance at all, but it does, right? And I think that those stories caught so deeply because I think that they actually have the mythopoetics that feels true. Like I'm saying this in a kind of Jungian sense, right? Like that there is a collective sensibility of a thing. And it's that it didn't take everybody having a real sense to start to unify, to build something that then could work for everybody in the same way that the signers of the constitution were not everybody. But they were all risking their life when they signed the Declaration of Independence for um, some more perfect union. They had enough trust with each other that if the other people defected, they'd all be dead, right? Towards something that then made an on-ramp for more people to participate. So you have to build a new attractor that has the Mm. right criteria that is also more effective. I see the world being so profoundly ineffective in so many areas right now and only effective at things that are pretty profoundly undesirable that something that is effective in a desirable way has the ability to catch on. So it's those who are rightly oriented to get it starting to build things that can be on ramps. So one way of talking about it is technology increases our power. We can make bigger choices through the leverage of technology. Our choices are still mostly shitty. Right? Our choices are still mostly short-term over long-term, and they're still mostly some agents advantaging themselves over and against other agents in the commons. You don't get to make choices in that shitty basis with exponential tech and have a world that works. Mm-hmm. This is the, if you get the power of gods, you have to have the love and wisdom of gods to direct and bind it, or you just blow yourself up. And we kept making more and more powerful tech, but... With the bomb was the beginning of us having tech we couldn't use anymore. And we had to start to have some better way of guiding it. And we created the first global governance system once we got the bomb to prevent war, which was the UN and the World Bank and the Bretton Woods world and the idea of globalism and global cooperation. It just happened to be that that did prevent superpower war for like, you know, 75 years, but at the expense of a kind of GDP growth that required extracting from the earth radically faster and hitting planetary boundaries on all these areas and then creating a world system that was radically fragile. So a problem in one part of the world would cascade everywhere. 
and that didn't prevent technology for a lot of other kinds of arms races that are harder to stop than just one thing that you can do with mutually assured destruction like nukes. So we need to do a new thing. But the thing with exponential tech is you can't limit it the way you can nukes because you can kind of control the uranium mines. You can kind of see the radioactivity from satellites. It's really, really hard to enrich uranium. It's really hard to make ICBMs. Once somebody figures out how to make a better method of CRISPR and publishes a paper, the tech to physically do it is really easy. Once somebody figures out how to make a better cyber weapon or a better AI system and publishes a paper, anybody has access to Amazon cloud services to have more than a Cray supercomputer level of compute. So it's like, fuck, how do you control that thing, right? Mm -hmm. China has a good answer. You do it through ubiquitous surveillance. That's then its own kind of dystopia though, right? So it's, is there something other than ubiquitous surveillance? Okay, so if you understand how powerful exponential tech is, one thing you'll get is that only groups that are developing and deploying exponential tech towards some long-term vision have any chance of directing the future. Just from a real politic, what is power point of view, Mm -hmm. anyone else who's thinking about the future but not developing the power to implement it, it just won't matter. Right. Except insofar as those who are developing and deploying it like the ideas and take it as their own. And right now, the exponential tech is only being developed by two groups as I see it. It's being developed intentionally towards a long-term purpose by authoritarian nation states to make more powerful authoritarian nation states. China's the main example, but there are plenty of other ones. And even insofar as the US tries to see how to not lose relative to China, it's mostly trying to see how it can beat China being China. How, how do we increase our digital surveillance and our control over the narrative and our whatever, right? So either you lose to China or beat China being China or fucking innovate in how to actually do better open society, which is a harder and different and better thing. Uh, but I'm not putting down China. I'm saying that the thing that they're doing makes fucking heaps of sense in the presence of decentralized catastrophe weapons and inability to coordinate and the real need to coordinate. What they're doing makes heaps of sense. It's just there is something that can harness more collective intelligence with more freedom and more emergence in the order that is even more worth doing. And the other type of group other than authoritarian nation states developing and deploying exponential tech are huge corporations, mostly Western, where the Amazons and Facebooks and Googles and et cetera are in many ways becoming more powerful than nation states and they're debasing the integrity of the nation states that would have regulated them that can't regulate them. And they're developing rockets, which are ICBMs without a payload, better rockets. They're developing satellite systems and they're developing AIs and quantum computers and robots and IoT systems and and attention controlling and VR and whatever kinds of systems and brain chip interfaces, right? And towards some set of goals that also though exponentially powerful corporations is feudalism again. But it's not that many different feudal overlords. So it's like a feudal oligarchy, a global feudal oligarchy. Like the authoritarianism, there's no bottom-up jurisprudence in that system. There's no checks and balances on the power. There's no beholdenness to the values of the people. So both of those are dystopic. Yeah. And so the thing that I'm focused on is how do we develop and deploy the full suite of emergent technologies, digital and exponential technologies, to build a society that is stable and not dystopic. So not catastrophic risk and not some kind of 
authoritarian dystopia. How do we develop and deploy the full suite of exponential technologies to build a stable and non-dystopic civilization? The technologies themselves can do that. Like we can make technologies that do that, not individual ones in isolation. It's not what AI can do or what blockchain can do or what IoT can do. It's what those things in a, the right ecosystem aligned with the right values and enculturation, whatever can do. Enculturation just means culture, the development of shared values, or at least the ability to converse, to understand each other's values, right? And so when I mentioned in the beginning, creating a decentralized innovation zeitgeist, Right now, people think the problem is bipartisanship or they just think their side is right and the problem is the woke people or the or the anti-woke people or the problem is China or CO2 or whatever the fucking narrow thing it is that doesn't understand why, if that's the problem, we haven't solved it <laughs> and why the approach that has been working will continue to not solve it. Right. The problem is the inability to coordinate everything at scale, and particularly with the speed of emergent technologies and the scale of them. And so the thing that's needed is the coordination systems that are adequate that must both develop and utilize those technologies to have enough power while simultaneously binding them so they're not catastrophic and aligned with the social values that are most meaningful. If that became a decentralized zeitgeist, everybody got that. And the State Department said, fuck, we need to launch a Manhattan Project to work on this to develop those technologies, not for a military application, because we're not looking at losing militarily to China, but through all these other things, but to develop better governance. And the EU started to think about that and the UN started to think about that, but so did bright guys at MIT and Stanford just working on technology and at Ethereum and you know decentralized places. And we started to get a, a decentralized space of innovation working towards how the world can actually effectively coordinate in ways that are both good for the collective and the commons and good for individual sovereignty simultaneously and actually a virtuous cycle between the two. The amount of total collective intelligence possible and the amount of leverage of the suites of technologies used, I feel tremendous hope in, which is why the question that was asked at the beginning of like, what am I thinking about is how to get that to be the primary thing that lots of people are thinking about so that the intelligence starts being applied towards that topic. That's a fantastic place to end. And you, you wrapped it up beautifully. As you know, we're, we're huge fans of, of the way you think and the generosity uh, that you bring to explaining your ideas. Is there anything uh, that, that the listeners can go see the Consilience Project currently or, or other things that you'd like to share before we sign off? The consilienceproject.org, it's like a very early beta place where we're starting to just write some papers that explain parts of this so that it can be better understood. There'll be a whole kind of suite of papers. And then of course those need translated into animations and things that can have broader cultural appeal. Um, bringing the people together that can really think about it well and help people understand well, why is a fourth estate needed for an open society? Why is that forever dead in the previous versions in the digital age? What would a post-digital age fourth estate require? Same with education, same with economics, same with law, same with governance. How do we rebuild our social structures utilizing the new infrastructure in the appropriate ways we're unpacking those topics and people can message us there if they feel like they can help if people have not already i know you've had them on your show if people haven't went and checked out uh, the social dilemma and tristan harris's mm -hmm. work and center for humane technology it's a very good entry to start to see how some parts of the exponential tech suite mess up open society good friend and partner and you know if if there are people who are working on already good tech solutions you can message me but the sad thing is we actually don't have the ability to vet all those get back participate yet, which requires growing the team. Uh, so if there are people that are interested with 
the capital support we need and how to grow the team and the operations. Those are the things that give us the bandwidth to work with other stuff. Fantastic. We hope that people reach out with that intention. Thank you again, Daniel. This was really fantastic. Thanks for having me here. This was fun. I hope it was somewhat interesting. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes of At A Distance, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Instagram at slowdown.tv. To sign up for our weekly newsletter, Exploring the Five Senses, head to our website at www.slowdown.tv.